We'll wait. Slow down. There you go. All right. Hey, everybody, come on in. Come on in close so you can hear me, because we're going to pray. I think that's a good idea, don't you? Yeah. So let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here this morning, that we can sing and we can pray and we can learn more about you. We pray for Children's Church, that we would do those things and learn more about you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. No, I was worried that like no adults will come down and I'll have all these children down there and, and nobody to, to take them off. And it never happens that way, amen. But it does cross my mind. I told some people before uh, church today that uh, as you know, I teach preaching at Reformed Theological Seminary, and I teach all these rules that you should follow in uh, uh, preparing, writing, and uh, preaching sermons. And I told them, basically, don't listen to me, because often I break all of my own rules. And today is one of those days. Um, because one of the things I teach is you should make the meaning of the passage the message of the sermon. And sometimes, particularly with parables, there's multiple meanings, so you have to find what's the major meaning and the minor one. And so the question inevitably comes up, can you preach the minor meaning? And I usually say yes, if you've also preached the major one. Well, today we're going to do the minor one, because the major one's going to come several more times in Matthew. And this is a passage that has an already and not yet uh, in it, in the sense of uh, part of this is already going on, already happening, Jesus' day and our day. But the major point is the not yet. But this morning I'm going to focus on the already, which is the minor part, because we're going to get to the not yet multiple times in Matthew. So just in case you're wondering why I'm not giving more attention to some verses, um, that's why. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. This is another split passage where Jesus gives a parable, there's sort of an interlude, and then he explains it. So we're going to read the first part, uh, verses 24 through 30, where Jesus is giving the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or if you grew up with the King James, the wheat and the tares. Um, those are T-A-R-E-S. Not in common usage today. So the wheat and the weeds. So please listen carefully as Jesus uh, is speaking to us. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him, came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. So let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then we jump down to verse 36, where we get the explanation. And there we pick up with it, and it's talking about Jesus. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. And once again, you bring us to this amazing gospel of Matthew to learn more about your son, Jesus. This morning, we ask that you would give us the grace and the ability uh, to understand this parable of the wheat and the weeds. Help us to see this parable contains profound truths which can change our lives. Use this parable to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus and hear Jesus and understand Jesus. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the most difficult subjects to cover... Uh, in preaching, is the fact that Jesus is constantly telling people to look at yourselves and to test yourselves to see whether you're really uh, growing a Christian or if, in fact, you're just fooling yourself. And there are so many places where Jesus says this that we have to deal with it. Now, personally, uh, I'm always a little bit scared to deal with it. I tell you, when I first went to pastor a church in Alabama, there were a lot of people who'd been there for many years, and there was no real enthusiasm for the gospel, and there was very little spiritual life. So I began preaching on spiritual growth. And truth be told, those sermons weren't great. Uh, but the purpose was good, and God was very gracious uh, to us, and eventually spiritual growth came to many people in that church, but certainly not to everyone. And actually, that's pretty normal. Uh, in the church. Some people seem to consistently grow in the faith, and others seem not to. And you can't always figure out why or why not. And sometimes it can be pretty frustrating, and yet it is a really, really important issue. And it's important simply because Jesus addresses it a lot. You know how often Jesus says, you may be fake, 
You may be bogus. You may be counterfeit. The Apostle Paul repeatedly says or strongly implies, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Jesus himself says on the last day, many people will come to him on that day of judgment. And Matthew 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, there are all kinds of scary statements in the Bible, and this is one of them. And they tend to make people nervous because they force us to look at ourselves and ask, am I really a believer or not? Now, I'm not quite as prone to preach that way in northern Virginia. And part of the reason is, uh, previously in a blue-collar town in the south, I mean, even the criminals were members of First Baptist. Everybody had walked the aisle. Everybody had given their life to Christ. Everybody, no matter what. And that's dangerous. Because they think there is nothing bad they can do that will have any effect on them. And Jesus is saying that's not quite the case. Now, I'm not as prone to preach on that today because, first of all, I think it's a lot clearer in a place like Northern Virginia uh, to know whether you're a Christian or not. I think the lines are drawn more clearly. I think there's lots of hostility. There's lots of people who have no pretense of being a Christian and actually think you're pretty dumb if you claim to be. And the typical lifestyle in Northern Virginia is so different than the lifestyle Jesus outlines in the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, that if you decide to give your life to Christ, you immediately know the lines are uh, where the lines are drawn. And that's just not as true in other places. And that's one of the reasons I haven't preached on this uh, so much, uh, whether you know or not, because usually it's pretty obvious. But then sometimes when the texts we're studying or the things happening around us uh, force us to look at this issue. And the reason we have to look at this issue, at this teaching, is because we do see people around us who look like they're doing well in the Christian faith. And suddenly they disappear. We have to explain why that happens. I mean, haven't you noticed sometimes there'll be people sitting right alongside of you in church, doing well, seeming to come to Christianity, enjoying it, and you watch them, you get to know them a little bit, and then all of a sudden, they're gone. These are the people who suddenly stop coming to church, stop coming to small group, stop coming to Sunday school, stop coming to Christian activities, you wonder why they're not at the fall festival, and they lose interest, and they drift away. There's nothing humorous there. But we've all seen it, and you don't know what happened to them. Why have they stopped coming? And unless you understand something about the teaching of Jesus here, you're going to get pretty disillusioned when someone you like, who seems to be this fruitful and effective Christian, suddenly disappears. It could be a variety of reasons. Uh, some, someone may suddenly, uh, or, or even over time, sort of just quit. They just give up on the faith. 
often it's because they've moved into some sort of non-Christian lifestyle. And it's too painful to keep coming and hearing what God's Word says because they know they're being disobedient to it. And people say, how can that happen? How can that be? And Jesus tells us very clearly in this parable, there are counterfeits inside the body of Christ. The parable tells us there are people who come in and look like they're doing very well. They look like Christians in every way, but then they're not. They give up. They let go. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter uh, 2 that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's a pretty strong statement. And one of the things he's saying there is that real Christians last. They stay to the end. If they haven't stayed to the end, then no matter how authentic they looked, they weren't. And that's what he's saying. And in today's passage, Jesus' parable sort of brings a new twist to that because he says there are counterfeits who stay to the end. On the last day, the day of judgment, it will be revealed that there are some people who are standing there in the community of saints who really aren't saints at all. Now, I'm not using the word saints in the Roman Catholic sense of superabundantly, incredibly wonderful Christians, but in the biblical sense of any Christian who has the Spirit of God uh, in them. And at the end of time, there's going to be people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and this and this and this? And Jesus will say, I didn't know you. And I have to come to grips with that. We have to. It's in the Bible. It makes us nervous. It makes us scared. And I'm not trying to rattle you. I don't want you to say, oh my gosh, I wonder if I'm fake too. Because the answer here is the Word of God tells us. The Word of God gives us guidelines. And the fact of the matter is no counterfeiter can make counterfeit money that is so perfect that the experts who know what they're looking for can't tell the difference. Of course, some counterfeiters are pretty good, and so it actually takes an expert to spot the difference. We had a counterfeit bill once in church. Somebody dropped a fake 20 in the offering plate. I'm thinking it was roughly about 10 years ago. And the bank notified us because they wouldn't count that towards the deposit. Like, give us a break, you know. And uh, I went to the bank and asked them. And they're actually waiting for the police. They had to turn it over to the police who turns it over to somebody else. Eventually it winds up with the Secret Service who are in charge of all the money. Uh, but they showed it to me. Pretty much looked like a $20 bill to me. Now, I'm no expert, but there's no way. But, you know, they got like infrared lights and special pens and all sorts of stuff, but they knew right away, this one's not real. Happens. But biblically, any one of us can be that level of expert on real and counterfeit Christians, because we all have the Word of God. We can go to the Word of God and take a look at what it says. And it's pretty simple. And I'm going to lay out for you, hopefully, uh, very simply on how to understand the difference. Because the first thing that we see here is a real Christian is someone whose heart has been transformed by the Word of God. That's clear. In the first parable in this chapter, Jesus 
was explaining the parable of the sower. He said in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So what's the seed? What's the seed that brings about new life? It's the word of the kingdom, the gospel, the truth, the word of God. That's pretty clear. And there's a lot of places in the Bible that says we're born of the Spirit, but it also says, one example, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we're born of the Word of God. It says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. So what makes a Christian a Christian is there's a body of truth that comes in. There's no doubt that being a Christian is more than doctrine. Being a real Christian is more than just knowing and understanding doctrine, but it's not less. At some point, you have to know some basic level of truth. There's a couple of basics that you have to believe. You must know and believe there's a God who's a good Father and a holy God who demands justice. You have to believe in Jesus Christ the Son of God who did something on the cross that dealt with our sins. You have to believe the Spirit of God can come into your life and completely regenerate you. And you have to believe it's all received by faith, not by works. Those are very, very basic uh, truths of Christianity. But you can't go beneath them. You can't reduce Christianity below that. Christianity is certainly more than that, but it's not less than that. And that's the message of the kingdom, and that's what brings about this miraculous transformation of the new birth. And so we see that the seed has to go all the way in to the very bottom of our hearts. And counterfeit Christians don't get that. They may say they do. They may even have some Bible knowledge, but they don't understand the gospel, the word of the kingdom. And what we're saying is a real Christian is a Christian who's been affected, who's been changed, who's been transformed by the Word of God, not just on the outside, but on the inside, in the heart. And that image uh, metaphor of the heart is very important in the Bible. We see it throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Romans 6 gives us a great picture of what a Christian is. There the Apostle Paul says, Romans 6, verse 17 but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. It's all there. You obeyed from the heart the standard of teaching. So we see right here, mind, will, and emotions are all involved. You have the mind first. There's a form of teaching that came in. We've already seen that. Can't be a Christian unless you accept truth. Doctrine, teaching, it has to come in. That's the first thing. Minimal core of the message of the gospel, the kingdom, has to be there. Second, it comes into the will. It goes all the way into the heart. And the way you see that it's come all the way in is that it results in a changed life and greater obedience. It says you're obedient from the heart. So you have the will, you have the mind, and you have the emotions. And one thing to keep in mind is in the Bible, the word heart means the seed of the mind and the will and the emotions. In English, we use it normally just to mean the emotions. But the Bible never uses the word heart like that. I mean, sometimes it says you think in your heart. Sometimes it says you act with your heart. Sometimes it says you feel with your heart. The heart is the seat of all three. So what Paul is saying 
in Romans 6 is if the truth gets into your heart, it affects your mind, it affects your will, it affects your emotions, all three. So that really long explanation sets the stage for understanding this parable. Real Christians know and believe the word of God. It's had an effect on their heart, including the mind, will, and emotions. And it's evident in a life that's changing and growing in grace. Counterfeit Christians may know the word of God, but it hasn't gotten into their heart. It hasn't had any great effect on their mind, will, and emotions. And there's little or no evidence that their life has been changed or that they're growing in grace. All of which brings us to our text today, Matthew 13, and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Similar to the parable of the sower, it comes to us in two parts. First, Jesus tells them the parable, and then later he explains it to his disciples. So first we have the parable, which teaches us about the king's farm. The king's farm. Verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So first of all, notice the parallel has three parts to it, three features, three movements. First, we have the work of the farmer. He sows the wheat. He sows good seed. Crops begin to grow. Second feature is the work of the enemy. He comes in and sows a counter crop. And literally, the weed that he sows, the tares, uh, is a plant that's called zizania. There's a new word for you. And you don't want to grow zizania anywhere. Zizania is the bane of farmers everywhere in that part of the world, especially wheat farmers, because zizania is actually a degenerate form of wheat. It looks just like the wheat um, as it grew up, and it grows in fields with the wheat, but when it comes to maturity, there's no grain. There's no head of grain uh, at all. It's just stalk. And what happens is the zizania grows alongside the wheat and soaks up the nutrients and soaks up the moisture and stunts the growth of the crop. So the first feature is the farmer has sown his good seed. The second feature is there's this time between sowing and reaping, between sowing and the harvest, where not only is the good crop of the farmer growing, but the crop of the enemy has been planted, and it's growing too. And they're contending with each other. And then the third feature is the patience of the farmer. You see that at the end of verse 29 and 30. And people say, what should we do about it? And the farmer's reaction to the work of the enemy is be patient. Right now things are confused, things are difficult to discern, but eventually there will be judgment. We'll be able to judge between the wheat and the weeds, 
and eventually the weeds will be taken up and burned, and the wheat will be brought into me. But for right now, be patient. Those are the three features of the parable. It's been a seeding, sowing a good crop, period of time when good and bad crops contend with each other, but at the end, everything's made clear. Meanwhile, be patient. What does this mean? I think Jesus is teaching in this parable a number of things. Two in particular, there's really two major principles. And the first is that in the world today, there's two kingdoms. They are side by side, contending with each other. You actually even see that listed on that little Reformation insert in your bulletin. The second thing that he's trying to teach us is there's nothing more important in life. There is absolutely nothing more important than to know the difference between these two crops, the difference between these two kingdoms, and to know which one you belong to. Those are the two points. There's two crops, two kingdoms. They're side by side in the world, contending with each other, and it is absolutely imperative for you to know the difference and to which one you belong. So that's the farm. That's the setting. He's given us the parable. What's going on? So now we jump down to verse 36. And starting there in verse 36, Jesus explains to his disciples that it's because uh, it's the king's farm then it's also the king's harvest. Because it's the king's farm, it's also the king's harvest. Starting at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, there's a couple things we need to learn about the harvest. And I realize there are very, very few people here who grew up on farms, myself included. However, my grandparents were farmers. And so growing up, I heard uh, lots of farm stories from my mom all the time. And by the very nature of farming, farmers learn two things very quickly. One, you can't rush the crops. And two, you have to work very, very hard. So how do those two things translate to what Jesus is teaching here? Here in this wonderful parable, Jesus tells us you can't rush and you have to work hard. Specifically, you have to avoid on the one hand being a zealot and on the other hand being too passive. See, sometimes people, especially when they first come to Christ, they expect a harvest right away. They don't understand why it is that people who've hurt them don't seem to get punished. They don't understand why it is that things that they pray for don't immediately come true. They don't understand why it is when they've done some great uh, ministry, the fruit is never quite what they want. They don't understand why these things aren't happening right away. 
And Jesus comes in and says, you have to remember the kingdom of God is like farming. First of all, the Christian is to be incredibly stable. Because when you see success, Christians say, that's good, but I know it's temporary. Because there will also be the work of the enemy. And until the last day, I realized the greatest things that happened to me will always be tainted. On the other hand, the Christian's never passive and cynical because the Christian should be able to say, all right, I've been hurt, but someday it's going to be set straight, and I don't have to set it straight by myself. Perhaps this thing hasn't been working in my life, but someday it will because God's will is for my sanctification. His will is to make me holy, not just happy. And uh, so we have this ability to look at both the good and the bad and not get sort of toppled over by either. So then, what I want to know is, do you have that level of stability in your life from knowing that the kingdom of God is like farming? Perhaps some of you, at some time in your life, surely not right now, were overly zealous. Certain that tomorrow you are going to turn everything around. And you're ready to condemn anybody who's not perfect. Any church that's not perfect. Any situation that's not perfect. Sure that you're going to bring about, by yourself, the perfect ideal situation. I'm sure that's not the case for you, but it is for some. And if that's the case, then you don't understand the kingdom. If, on the other hand, you're cynical pessimistic, you've given up, you're bitter, you're resentful. Again, not you, other people, I'm sure. You're forgetting of the inevitable harvest of the king. And you're not understanding the kingdom. You can't rush the kingdom. Spiritual growth comes on God's schedule, not yours. And yet you can't quit either because you think it's taken too long. You know, you're going to have to do the hard work of sowing the word of God in your life and in the lives of others, and the equally hard work of being patient while God the Holy Spirit puts that word to work in the lives of others. You can't rush. You have to work hard because the kingdom of God is like farming. However, notice that I spoke about sowing and waiting, but not about reaping. Why? Because Jesus is the farmer. When it comes to spiritual things, he's the Lord of the harvest. We even got it on our banner. And you're not in charge of the harvest. Jesus is. So how come he gets the harvest and you don't? Well, he's a lot better at it than you are. You know, we have to realize a very frightening fact. One of the ways the kingdom of God is opposed by the evil one is that he plants people who look like Christians, who are moral and decent and maybe even religious, but in the end we find out they have no grain. In the end we find out they're not really Christians after all. They're counterfeit. One of the great things about this passage, at the same time frightening things about this passage, is we see one of the main strategies uh, against the kingdom of God is this idea of counterfeits. What does it mean when it says the enemy sows weeds that look just like wheat until the very end? It means a lot of people are duped into thinking they're Christians when they're not. It's a clear statement 
I think, in this parable, and that should frighten us some. And it should frighten us because many people in this country think they're Christians. Unless you're Jewish or you're from another country or Buddhist or Muslim, clearly some different religion, for the most part you think you're Christian. You may not go to church, but you live by Christian principles. You think you're a pretty good person. Or maybe you do come to church and think you're a Christian because you come to church. And Jesus says, look at the difference between the two. I'm going to give you a couple important tests, ways that you can look at the difference. First of all, we're told here in the text that real Christians are sons of the kingdom, sons and daughters of the kingdom. It means they've been planted. It means they're miracles. You know, why does God use born again to describe what it means to be a Christian? Why does God use being planted as one of the metaphors? Because a plant exists completely through the operation of something else. A plant can't plant itself. A baby can't make itself born. A person who's a Christian knows that even though you've struggled and worked very hard in this process of becoming a Christian, once you become a Christian, you realize there's an outside power that's been at work in your life. You realize someone's been opening your eyes. Someone has been guiding you and changing your life. And if you think Christianity is just a matter of self-reformation, making a few decisions, straightening your life out, sort of living a good life, think Christianity is something you do and you've never sensed the power of God coming in and showing you things that you've never seen about yourself before and changing your life. A spiritual power moving in from the outside, reaching in and remaking you from the inside out. Then you don't really understand what Christianity is. I'm not saying it necessarily has to be an immediate or even a dramatic life crisis. But every Christian is someone who knows I'm a miracle. God's power has changed me. That's the first thing. Then secondly, we have to ask, what's really the difference between the wheat and the weeds? Well, we find out at the end, but how do we get to the end? How do you know the difference before the end? Growth. Growth. It's all about growth. See, in the end, the Christian grows into the likeness of Christ. A person who's merely moral doesn't grow spiritually. A Christian is someone who grows more and more in the grace and knowledge of God as the years go by. A non-Christian, a counterfeit Christian, may look like everything's going well with them, but there's no growth. They're not growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. There's little evidence of obedience to the Word of God in their life. They don't seem to care about or consider the things of God apart from Sunday morning. And one of the greatest tests of this, I think, is that they rarely feel like a sinner. They rarely feel like a sinner. And you can always tell. I'll preach something about sin, or I'll call you all a bunch of big sinners, uh, which is true. Um, but, you know, I'm just crass and pragmatic and depraved and all that stuff. And uh, But... Eventually, sometimes I get a reaction that something along the line of, I'm fine, thank you very much. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? What more do you want? I go to church, I punch my ticket, I'm good to go, get off my case. But a real Christian grows in humility and joy at the same time. If you've been a Christian for a while, I don't even know what a while is, say 10 years, just pulling a number out of the air. 
then you'll have noticed that a strange thing has happened to you. You're far more, more aware of your faults than you used to be. You're far more aware of your weaknesses. You're far more aware of your sins than you were before. And yet at the same time, you feel more loved by the Father than you did before. That is absolutely unique to Christianity. The more sinful I feel, the more loved I feel. That's unique. The gospel creates that in you, and you can see that happening, and you can't believe it. You find yourself getting humbler, less swagger, less arrogance, more sensitive, because you know about your sin. At the same time, you feel more loved and more loved and more loved and more loved because in the end, it's the love of God the Father that we experience and we can sense more of his love as time goes on. And are you growing in those ways? Is your life being transformed by the word of God? Are you seeing the Holy Spirit change how you think and how you act and how you speak? Do you have a greater sense of your own sin and yet feel the Lord's love more and more? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you understand that being a Christian is a kingdom thing? Do you have the spiritual stability that comes from knowing the kingdom of God is like farming? Do you know that you can't rush and yet you have to work hard to follow the king? And in the end, you have to trust that the harvest is his and he knows what he's doing. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that you enable us to see your son. Open our eyes that we can see our sin and see the love of the Father at the same time. Help us to be people who are being changed by your word. Help us to be people who know we're loved by God the Father. Help us to understand the kingdom of God is like farming where you can't rush, but you have to work hard. Help us to trust Jesus as the Lord of the harvest. We know we can only do these things by faith. And Lord, I ask if anyone is here this day who comes in here not trusting Christ, we'd ask by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself that they might embrace Jesus as their Lord and their Savior and not be weeds, but be wheat. And in the end, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.